Hi everyone, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following podcast belong solely to the host and its contributors. They are not necessarily the views of our employers, organizations, committees, or other group or individual. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Joseph Whitney. This is Brewing with BIM. Where we talk about construction processes, technology, BIM, and beer. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Brewing with BIM. I'm Joe Whitney. With me, as always, is my uh, my buddy, Dave Campbell. What's up, Dave? Oh, not much, Joe. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Looking forward to uh, our, uh, our uh, guest here. We've got Greg Hale from Hale Technology in Practice. What's up, Greg? How you doing, guys? Doing well. Um, so, man, uh, just got done telling us that you're beat. You had a long day. Um uh, you're you're cracking open a beer right now, I imagine. Relaxing, soaking all in. All right. What are you drinking? So we had to, to stop by the uh, the local sheets. Those in Pennsylvania know here, and we uh, we're trying a a purple monkey dishwasher, chocolate peanut butter porter. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that sounds a, amazing. That is uh, it's an earful by all means. So the. Uh, <laughs> The, the company is Evil Genius. All right. Beer. Man, it sounds uh, like some Evil Geniuses. I like that. The uh, the website, as it's tagged, is evilgenius.beer. And they say, oh, yeah, it's not .com. It's .beer. I love it. <laughs> Sheets uh, doesn't have a large beer section. They have a pretty small walk-in cooler that you can go into. But the beers that they have, so they've got, like, your typical domestics, but they're like IPAs and the regional and all that stuff. This actually is an interesting little mix. Yeah, uh, I was able to find some good stuff, and uh, I always love trying to figure out what's what's local and what's a little bit different than hometown. Well, you've got a lot of local beers where you're at. You guys are, you know, Beer City USA essentially. I don't know how many breweries up in Rochester, but it seems like you guys got more than more than a few dozen. It's yeah, it feels a little endless for sure. Some good, some 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 not so good, but uh, I won't go there just yet. <laughs> <laughs> little uh, High Falls brew and uh, some Jenny cream ale. I like Jenny. Uh, the cream ale is not too bad. It's the um, what is that one? The Big Flats or whatever. They were selling. I lived in Texas and they were selling it for like forty cents a can. That should have been my first guess. Uh, um, I forgot who who does it. Maybe it's uh, Saranac or, or Genesee. I don't remember which one it is, but. It's like, man, they, they, yeah, they were just getting rid of some, some leftovers. Um, anyways, man, I won't knock any breweries. You know, I love beer, uh, all beer, most beer at least. Dave, what do you drink, bud? Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, my mom actually told me about a cocktail earlier in the week that she was excited to try, and I went to the liquor store tonight. And I'm like, that's what I want. And it's funny because you know, Greg's talking about his chocolate peanut butter porter over there. And I decided to make a uh, peanut butter and jelly cocktail. I uh, use oh. peanut butter whiskey and raspberry liqueur. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. You guys are drinking like meals in, in a can. That's like some, <laughs> some crazy. Now, if you could only smoke it, it'd be that much better. <laughs> oh, man. This is true. I'm, I'm sure you've tried smoking that before, right, David? <laughs> I wouldn't, no. I wouldn't say no. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am uh, keeping it classic here. I'm uh, 
Skipping, sipping on some uh, semi, I'll say cheap, semi cheap, inexpensive, I guess, uh, um, whiskey. It's uh, Ab- Aberfield, Aberfield, you know, twelve year old Scotch. I'm not, 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 uh, not doing anything radical like you guys today. I'm, uh, <laughs> I just haven't had time to go to the beer store, and I've got whiskey on my shelves for days, so <laughs> that's where I'm at. Nice, well, dude. Heck yeah, sounds good. You guys don't normally go for the the, the appetizers with it, but we had an interesting one today, which I've got over on the side stopping at uh, an Amish uh, food market for lunch, and they had chocolate-dipped bacon. Oh, man. There you go. That's a a nice companion for the uh, peanut butter porter. Yeah, heck yeah. You know what's funny is um, I've been getting more and more into hunting lately. And one of the things I keep reading, if you're backpacking, you're doing these, you know, four, five, six, seven day trips. um, One good thing to have in your pack is to take tortillas, put peanut butter and bacon in it and then, you know, just Ziploc them or whatever. And and apparently Mm. they provide enough like protein and kick and they, you know, they're filling. It's good. And you can kind of push out throughout an entire day with it. It's like, wow, I did not know that was a thing. Interesting. I wish I could say I hadn't tried peanut butter and bacon before. I've tried it. I like um, it. But uh, there were many a drunk occasions where I've, <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know what That's I was funny, thinking, dude. but I had like peanut butter and eggs. I that. I'm like, I'm on it. <laughs> oh, man. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> well, we didn't talk about, come here to talk about, um, the life of peanut butter and bacon and all that fun stuff. We're here to uh, find out more about scanning. We got Greg Hill on the line. For those of you guys that don't know, Greg is the man when it comes to scanning, scan technology. You are like uh, the poster boy for uh, Clear Edge, it seems like. I see you everywhere on Clear Edge stuff. They've been nice to me, for sure. Well, I love it just because uh, they're now part of our TopCon family. So, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, no complaints from me. So that means we're all part of the family now then. That's good. Yep. That's yes, it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. So um, if you don't mind, uh, I'd love to get a little quick background on you. Um, you know, how'd you get into scanning? You guys, you, Hail TIP is obviously um, your your company. Um, you got a few people underneath you now. You guys are, seems like doing everything, LiDAR, uh, drones, uh, BIM modeling, all kinds of stuff, Coordination. right? Yeah. Coordination. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, so um, you know, my my journey is not too far fetched from a, you know a lot of other uh, people who have kind of come up through CAD management and BIM management. Uh, I actually kind of kicked out of school in about 2000 as a structural engineer. Worked uh, for several years with a structural steel fabricator and erector. Um, so they kind of threw me to the fire uh, as a project manager coming out of school and running million dollar jobs and having uh, contractors jump down your throat real quick on the young kid in the block and you know learned a lot of things really fast out in the field and uh you know w- with all that stress coming in as, as a young kid you know like 22 23 years old and working on the job sites you know you know what maybe i should use that engineering degree for something um and i had actually gone out to school uh, in reno nevada that's uh the west coast boy and my wife was from rochester new york uh, we met there in college and she convinced me to to make the leap we were making the change over to engineering and uh you know, shifted over to the East Coast for a while, uh, signed up for an architecture and engineering firm, did some structural engineering and I'd say very traditional stuff for a number of years. And then this Revit thing came along 
and it changed everybody's world. And I was one of the, you know, the people that kind of jump on that boat pretty quick and it was right about 2006, 2007. So, you know, one of those kind of leading tech, tech guys, um, got the company through the big transition. It took several years and, you know, there was a lot of other companies out there that really needed help. You know, we'd started up a, a Revit users group, uh, had a lot of people going, you know what, our firm is outstanding. We have a license of Revit. We have got a few more people that want to jump on, but we're really kind of hacking it. We need help. Um, so kind of saw an opportunity there where there was, uh, you know, enough small firms out there or even bigger firms that could just use some help. Um, and then the, the scanning thing came along as well, uh, closer to 2013, 14. And it's kind of this nice marriage between uh, knowing Revit, knowing a lot of BIM technology, knowing the design industry and the construction industry. And then scanning come along with this nice new tech thing that people were really, you know, sketchy to try. So jumped on that boat after doing a couple jobs with it. Uh, could really see it as a service. So more or less jumped out as a 50-50 doing scanning, doing BIM consulting, uh, BIM modeling, and it's just kind of grown from there. So for since 2014, for the last uh, six and a half years, it's just kind of grown up and then expanded all around that core of, you know, Revit and BIM services, uh, kind of you name it, anything that revolves around that, and then uh, scanning. So and, and scanning has been real good to me. And then also, you know, a lot of kind of under the radar consulting get a lot of a lot of firms really up to the speed that they need to be at you're uh you guys are kind of like the one-stop shop for bim it sounds like you got you you are in a very uh unique position it's kind of like where dave and i just see the the merging of the the hardware side of things and 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 actually the software side scanning it really is mass data um talking about clear edge and edge wise and actually, you know, producing models from the scan data. It's actually something Dave and I are very, very um, fond of. We, Dave's a, a clear edge guy. He plays with it all day long and, and helps <laughs> do training and consulting, all that fun stuff too. Um, but uh, that's just, that's just an awesome uh, thing to be in. Like, I, I don't know, man, I, you seem very passionate about what you do and you're 14 years in now. Are you still just as passionate as you were back then? Yeah, it's 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 endless. I mean, uh, it just keeps going. You know, I, I do say I would have thought Revit would have fallen off a long time ago and there would have been something brand new and shiny, but there hasn't been. So that is just nice kind of repetition. Um, and scanning has just become a solid core thing and it gets a little bit faster, a little easier. And um, but there's there's always people in need and the engineer engineering me always wants to kind of come in and be the superhero and help people out. I love it. I love it. Are you seeing, um, so I chat with a lot of firms about like scanning services and what they're doing, you know, um, in, in the wake of COVID, are they, you know, going on site as much? And obviously the answer is obviously no, but they're always more like, well, what can we do to capture data um, so that we're not on job sites, that we're adhering to all these safety policies? You know, what what can we do? And scanning is almost always front of the line. Are you seeing kind of more of a... Um, I wouldn't say boom, but yeah, more of a boom, more of a uh, uh, presence for scanning nowadays. I, I I think there's definitely a presence. I wouldn't say that there's been a big shift for us. It's been a mixed bag because we've had a lot of clients pull back. Um, we've had some clients, we had some pretty big jobs lined up and because they you know, were seeing some upcoming work and they wanted to keep their own staff 
moving, uh, they went ahead and purchased on their own and you know went ahead with scanning internally uh, rather than outsourcing it and kind of staying in like in the design mode. They said, you know what, we, we want to keep our staff hired. So let's um, let's do this internally, keep them working and uh, keep things going. So we've seen a, a shift there, some people pulling back on budgets. But at other times, like you said, uh, you know, whether it's they don't want to travel or they really just need to get the, the digital twin out there fast so they don't have to travel to the job site. So we've seen a pickup there, but also you know, a downside of budgets and people kind of doing it on their own. What would, you, what would you say like the biggest pushback to adopting like scanning would be that you've seen so far? Uh, it's always the people and not the technology. Uh, so it's, do you have the right staff that really wants to do this? It's like architects okay. really want to be architects. They don't really want to be on site measuring stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Engineers are kind of middle of the road. Some guys really like the site work, but for the most part, like, you know, we just were out all day scanning a you know, production facility. It's, it's kind of hard work. It's a long day. You're on your feet. Um, you know, it's a little bit more work than a tape measure. Yeah. Oh, well that, and, and, you know, I think another part of that would be, you know, you have to have someone that is well versed in not only knowing how to operate the scanner, um, but also processing that data, right? Because I mean, that's yes. a big, big, big part of, I mean, a huge part of of transitioning that data into the as built into the design programs and things like that. Um, but I guess, you know, I, I've seen, I've also seen that myself that pushback because it, you know, it, it's going to take time or it costs money or, you right. know, you need to find somebody that has that uh, background well, already in order to benefit from it. And they have to do it enough that they're not going to forget and have to relearn it every time. That's the other thing that we see because to your point about the right people, right? Yeah. I mean, so often it's like, oh yeah, we, you know, these aren't that expensive and, and the technology really is. I mean, it, it really will pay for itself, but it's not just the technology. Are you going to keep up to, you know, using it? Are you going to have the staff that's going to maintain it? Is that person going to go away and now you're left with a scanner sitting on a shelf? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that, we've seen that happen a number of times. So it's a big investment to to not fully go after it. And you, you kind of got to visualize it as a survey department, right? Are you going to build a department that does this? And do you have enough work, repetitive work to keep being out in the field and measuring things? Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was a valid point, though, about architects um, not wanting, you know, they're wanting to be architects, not wanting to measure things. I had a mouthful of comments some good, some bad about architects measuring things. So, so I'll leave it at that, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, the interesting thing to think about, though, is as scanners continue to and technology itself continue continues to, you know, kind of get better, right? Or, or kind of um, maybe not even get better, but allows itself to be used for so many, you know, different things. Like we're starting to see. Um, some of the other smaller handheld scanners that are producing, you know, masses pretty much instantly as they're walking around or, you know, just actually with with images. Right. We, we have uh, the conversion now of images into point clouds. I, I see this the use of it kind of expanding and and like my background was in architecture. I saw the use of scanning because then I didn't have to go out there with a tape measure yep. and try to make sure that I measure every single thing there. If I didn't document it correctly, it's another field, you know, field visit. And it's going to be another field visit anyways to double check it because you have to. And then you have to drag so many people out with you. And I mean, I was I got to the point where, you know, I was using a, either a tape measure or you use a, a laser, right, to shoot those distances. But you're still 
crawling everywhere in that building, taking pictures, spending so much time going through that building, if it's an existing project, obviously, but to document that. And I think, you know, as again, scanning continues to kind of go down this line or, or improve on itself and we see these different use cases, um, I, I think we'll we'll see that buy-in from everybody eventually, but they have to make it to a point of where it's usable, right? It's simple. Well, yeah. So, so you mentioned a few different types of scanners there. Um, I run into this quite a bit. Like I'll get a scan from somebody and it doesn't fit the need of the, or the, the intended purpose of the scan, right? So I want to you know, take measurements or I want something, you know, just as a mesh or something just as a backdrop, or I want to document existing conditions, or maybe I want it as an as-built or like there are so many different avenues we can go down with the intended use of the point cloud. Are you seeing, you know, maybe, you know, these, David, you mentioned these handheld scanners and stuff like that. Are you seeing some benefits from them, uh, you know, or is it mostly yeah. just for the internal, you know, in term, the beginning stuff? Just curious to get your take on that. Well, I think we're, we're a little bit of a transition point with the handheld or the backpack scanners, the mobile. It's getting very close to being as good as the terrestrial scanners, but not quite there. So you really got to dig into the scope of the work on whether, you know, that scanner is going to meet the need or not. Um, so it, it all comes down usually to point density. So are there enough points on the surface of that object to be able to model from it? And usually the, the breaking point that I use is, do you need to see pipes? And if you need to see pipes, do you need to see four inch pipes or do you need to see two inch pipes or smaller? And it's this thing where a lot of times they say, nah, we don't really need that. And then you go out and if you were to deliver at that level of detail, they come back and you say, well, we actually needed that now that we're you know, a different stage of the project. So. I prefer to kind of go down the more conservative path and take more density, take more measurements than you really need, and then you find more uses for that, rather than going with a tool that isn't quite as good and then coming back and saying, I wish I just had a little bit more. So, you know, some, some great examples of that, you know, going out to jobs, um, you're scanning, and then you come back and say, guess what, that floor is not flat. And, you know, the reason we know it's flat is we just took like, 30 million points on that floor and we can do a heat map and guess what? It's like six inches out of level, you know, and when you come back with a, you know, some other scanner, it's not quite as accurate, you know, it's in and out six inches or so, you can't really tell, but that you find these unintended uses for it now that you have so much data. So, you know, we're at that cusp. I think it's going to transition over in the near future as these get a little bit faster and stronger, um, a little bit more mobile. Uh, I'd say within the next two years or so. Um, and then it's just got to meet the right price point. But, yeah. Yeah. you know, there, there's a lot of good use cases for, especially uh, like university campuses going around and doing an entire campus. You don't need high level of detail. You just need, you need to know position of buildings. Or if it's all architectural, you need to know uh, floor plans and ceiling heights. No problem. You can do low density. But as soon as you cross that threshold of needing more, you got to kind of dial it up. Um, so I tend to go with a tool that can do a little bit more. I like it. I like it, uh, Joey. Hashtag SwoleBim. That's, uh, you know, I'm always for more information. If I have more information than I need, I feel like it's a good thing, right? <laughs> you're, you're that guy that has too many tools and then yeah. figures he'll just use them later. Like, ah, Dude, you know, I'll figure something to build eventually. Yeah. I love it. I love it, man. Oh, man.
Oh, so um, this is—I mean, I, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much again for joining us, Greg. Um, I, I always love being able to talk to you know other other people that are passionate about our industry and and kind of uh, again people like yourself who are on the the kind of front line of that change. You guys have seen how it has you know changed how it's evolved throughout the years. You guys are involved in these processes such as you know scan to BIM uh, facility integrated facility management trade coordination. Um, there's so many different things that you guys kind of transition into do you find yourselves i guess using that scan data in in more ways than just let's say as building uh yeah definitely i mean it's it's one of those things when you know what the tool does you start to find like i said all those different uses for it um so you know a lot of times we come on a job sites for a completely different purpose and you say you know what we could use this for you know a couple of other things as well or we know that there's other um, avenues for this, like different um, people who can use this data. So even though maybe we're scanning for an architect, we know that there's a mechanical engineer on their team and an electrical engineer, and there's also you know, the contractors, and each one has a different use case for it. So you know, we, we might say, you know what, for you know, let's say another thousand bucks, we could get above the ceiling. And then you could, you know, hand this off to your engineer and you could actually charge them for it, you know. So when we start to get some talks going about, um, you know, how can more of the people benefit from this? And this is usually where I dial back and say, you know, what is your scope? What are you trying to accomplish? And not just not just necessarily your scope, but what's the entire scope of the project? What's the phasing look like? What are you trying to accomplish? And when we start to, to get down to the meat of it, we start to get beyond their personal purpose and get down to the overall purpose of the project and say, you know what, well, we could also use, you know, this scan data for this and this and this. Um, you know, a lot of time it is construction purposes and tying into old buildings, but other times you guys are very well aware of like construction verification. So after you've, you've gone through a lot of virtual design and construction or virtual design, you need to verify or validate that someone, that that plumber actually put that pipe where you told them to put it. And it's, not that easy to do. That's a lot of measurements. So when you start to build in a repetitive scan process, um, it becomes you know kind of infinitely valuable. Like at different stages of the project, these things become very very important. So seeing the whole project um, really benefits, and seeing all the other benefits that things like the the field measurements and scanning can do. So verification is a big one. We're we're pushing the industry that way more and more. Um, and we've kind of had to go out there and prove it first. So kind of offer some free services and say, you know what, we'll go out and we'll scan this first. We're going to show you the data and show you how bad it is, and then you can pay us later. <laughs> I like that. I like it. I like it because at that point, the data just shows itself. It's uh, The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Yeah. So, man, I, I know we could go on talking about scanning all day, but I, I do want to kind of touch on some of the other things that you guys do as well. Um, especially, you know, we kind of get to talking about visualizing the entire project. Um, and, and I, you know, I keep touching back on this, but coordination, I think um, the discipline coordination is a huge part of our industry. And, you know, with, I don't know, more, more integration that we've seen with, you know, Navisworks, BIM 360, Revit, we're starting to see some of these kind of clashes, automated clash detection, things like that start to kind of span out and, and become, uh, I don't almost standard, right? Uh, anymore, yeah, I, think, I think it's standard. Yeah, 
Yeah, I like the word prevalence a little better. I wouldn't call it, call it quite standard. Um, I think you got to take project scale into account. So a lot of these bigger projects, mm-hmm. I'd say it's definitely prevalent. Um, but when you start getting into a lot of the smaller projects, let's say 25 million and below, it's it's pretty hard to find. Really? Why? So, so why do you do, why do you think that would be? There's less to coordinate. And not only is there less to coordinate, there's less of a budget for BAM. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's kind of an interesting kind of take on it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the construction managers and general contractors that are on these projects. So when you get beyond a certain scale, there's a level of risk and that level of risk goes way up. And these are the teams that you start to see the, the VDC teams popping up at. Um, you know, I, I had an interesting year last year, uh, a great company, Whiting Turner. Uh, they're out of DC, I think is their headquarters. Yeah, and, and they they talked to uh, you know how they've grown their BIM department over the last few years, and they're like, oh yeah, a few years ago we were like five people, you know, in a single office, and now we're up to like 91 in our BIM department. It's like, oh my god, you know, that's validation that this is a profession at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. You know, they're they're really you know growing up. But at the same time, you know, a lot of these smaller projects, we're we're actually doing a lot of things like schoolwork, you know, where these projects are 20, 25 million or less, five million dollar jobs. You know, it really is low bidder, and you know these people don't think they have the room to to go out and coordinate and validate and do other things, and they don't see that level of risk necessarily. Mm-hmm. They can't certainly can't afford a BIM department. They certainly can't uh, always uh, afford a 3D modeler or a Revit modeler compared to you know someone who's drafting for 20 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. So there's there's kind of this different scale factor that plays into it. Okay. Well, there's a whole mindset too, right? So if we're talking about a $25 million project, are we going to be able to get one? Are we going to be able to get an owner to pay for, you know, BIM, right? You know, if we right. say that we want to do coordination, class detection, whatever, we're going to have a write-in, it's in our contract. They're going to pay us X amount of money um, for this process. Whoever's leading the process gets the bulk of the money, that sort of thing, right? That That's that's typical, but the, the issue is... Um, at $25 million, the the owner isn't really concerned about a BIM. There's no deliverable for BIM for an owner at a $25 million or an under project. Uh, there's no complex systems. There's no integrations with an FM component typically. Uh, yeah, there's maintenance schedules and that sort of stuff, but it's not it's not as um, dire or, or pressing as, say, a larger project. And with that, the... the um, there's, you know, they don't have anybody on staff that even knows how to use that data, right? Even if they did, they did have an FM person. That FM person is, you know, a glorified. I'm not gonna say glorified because that's a bad way of putting it, but they're they're more or less not not attuned to using CAD software. You know, they want PDFs, they want O&M manuals, they want that sort of stuff. And it doesn't necessarily have to be this, you know, big, you know, filled model that they they can utilize. So at that point. Here's a big misnomer with BIM. We talk about BIM, this total BIM, and BIM being for the owner. Oh, really? It's about you know integrating all this data, and you know 97% of the building's life of costs happen after its life cycle or after a construction life cycle, that sort of stuff. We you know tout those numbers, but at the end of the day, um, the the bulk of the BIM that we do is just for the the trades and the sub and the GC. Everything else beyond that is um, you know it's got a very unique owner. Yeah. Well, I guess the question, the question there or the, the kind of topic of, of thought there would be, um, does the project 
uh, I guess with the ROI for that project, you know, um, would BIM make sense, right? Oh, all the because, time. I believe in it. Well, yeah. exactly. See, that's kind of what I'm thinking as <laughs> well. Take, with a $25 right? million dollar project with um, adopting BIM and, you know, kind of as we're, we're talking here, I've heard, you know, a lot of people have issues because of the cost of it or, you know, they don't yeah, have who's people who... For, for the extra level of detail, who's paying yes. for remodeling. Yeah. Oh, you know, lowest cost... Uh, Greg, you had a, a tremendous point there when you said lowest cost wins. And that's yep. that's 100% of the time. Lowest cost is not a BIM... Like, it's not a it's not a 3D modeler. It's uh, somebody who's kicking out, you know, floor plans and, you know, uh, there, there's thought, no. Sorry, go ahead. Well, my, you know, you're good. I was just thinking my thought process about that, though, is I wonder if we if we stood back and compared um, something like like the entire project cost, not just the design cost sure. and the design time and you know everything like that, but the entire project cost itself compared to, let's say, a similar size project that used BIM. So rather so rather than selling the the everybody involved on the project sell the owner on the importance of BIM. Like this is how much time on a project BIM could save you if mm-hmm. you mandated BIM on your project. And then you'd yep. have to define LODs and all that stuff. Yep. But having that information, that's how much it could take. That's, that's pretty good. Cause we do have statistics. We can show, um, I use this pretty common graphic about, uh, it's a uh, Revit versus AutoCAD and, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, Sorry, I right. guess on the uh, no 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 dude you're good I was just thinking like on the on the flip side of that coin with the adoption of BIM I know this is something we wanted to kind of touch on tonight anyways um, the, it's you know if you put garbage in you get garbage out right <laughs> yeah. you got to put some effort and put some data into these models well, such as with our our specifications right if you're if you're putting specs if you're um, like making these families and placing these types of warranty information or just whatever specification information you can place into those models it needs to be like that data that's going in there needs to be good right if yeah. you're just giving people these little dynamic blocks or these things these you know families with maybe a couple connections and things like that that don't really have too much data in it you're costing the people down the line more time and more effort right and the overall project itself has to be um i mean it would cost more i would think it would have to be it would slow it down and it would cost more right yeah so it's got to be if when we get into it i think you got to if you get into it you got to you got to do it right so you said specifications earlier, and that reminded me of our previous conversation with Greg. And we, uh, you brought up uh, three topics, uh, three things that were worth mentioning. And you know, two and three I was going about, but this first one, coordination specifications. Um, you know, uh, I agree with you. We are seeing, uh, you know, some poorly written uh, specifications out there on projects. You know, as they go out for bid. People don't, one don't know what they're asking. They don't know how to ask. Like there's there's so much uh, information missing from this. Um, so I just wanted to get your take on this because um, you uh, you clearly had had something in mind. Well, I've got kind of two avenues to give you a kind of context of uh, you know why I think this is a good topic. Um, so on one side, I've, I've spent the last couple of years uh, consulting for a major grocery retail and really getting built into their system a good set of specs where they're really defining um, not just for their design team but also for the construction team this is what you're going to do Um, so when you get that that laid out it makes a huge difference and building a set of standards and actually providing everybody with the right tools to say here's how we really want you to do it Um, so it cuts a lot of corners they don't have to figure it out they get it done and they can you know throw out a really good spec and everybody's got to live by it it's that way it's built into the cost of the project 
Um, and it's, it's a nice, um, you know, way to kind of keep it out there and competitive. You know, a, a really good written spec is, is kind of really where it, all, where it all sits. The other avenue is kind of from a different angle. You know, we found when COVID hit that we were going to have to kind of change up our game a little bit. We would typically kind of sit back and wait for a contractor to call us. We've got lots of good relationships and it would be on that project that required BIM, right? Nobody would call us until the specs actually said they had to do it. So, you know, once that spec was written that said, hey, you, got, you have to provide coordination drawings, and sometimes it would say, you know, it has to be provided in 3D, we would get the phone call, we'd provide a price, away we go. And it's, it's a nice position to be in to just kind of sit back and wait. But we felt like we had to be a bit more aggressive. So, you know, just like any other trade contractor, we said, you know what, we better go out and get aggressive and try to bid this work. So let's, let's, you know, set up on a project bid site. Let's look at all the jobs that are out there. Let's find specs that require BIM or, or something close to it. And let's call people and say, you know what? Hey, we see that you're bidding this job and it requires, you know, 3D coordination. You know, we'd like to give you a price to do that. And we've had a, a lot of great success, really, you know, getting a lot of exposure, um, you know, getting people ringing our phone and say, you know, hey, we're also bidding this job and this job and this job. So a little bit more of a safety net. But what we found as we started doing that is this you know, huge range of specifications that are out there and some are extraordinarily awful. And really what it comes down to is, you know, when, a, when an architect or a design team is writing specs, they usually pay for a service like an AIA master spec service that gives them a vanilla spec. And then they can kind of tweak it a little bit based upon, you know, what their needs are. So there are specs out there that will say, hey, you're going to provide eight copies of this drawing in um, eight or like seven copies in in plain paper and three copies in mylar, and you know we're going to overlay this on a light table and we're going to go through this coordination process. You know there's stuff out there because people don't even look at that spec. Um, you know there's others. You know this can kind of lead into another topic is say hey uh, we've got a BIM model but we're not going to provide it. Um, you are going to get uh, PDFs and that's all you're going to get and there's kind of middle of the road and some say hey you're going to get AutoCAD backgrounds and there's others that will say hey you're going to get a full Revit model and you're going to deal with that and so there's this kind of very big wide variety and most contractors don't know what to do with that all they know what to do is call somebody else and say hey can you help me figure out a price of this so that I can add it to my cost or find a way to get around it to make sure my bid is lower than the next guy so I actually get this work so th there's a kind of a wide range and I would love to see an advancement of those specification, a new baseline, um, because I really hate to see so many firms out there designing in 3D and doing design coordination in 3D and saying, but by the way, we're not going to hand off even a CAD file. You're going to get PDFs. Those are the contract documents and you're going to start over. And but we but we still want you to coordinate the job. Yeah, so, it's, yeah. so, so I've seen that happened before. Uh, and typically it was because of poorly drawn models to begin with. The reason why they say, oh, we're not handing over the model is because one, it's, you know, they don't want to assume, you know, risk, liability, anybody doing anything with it down, down line. There's an easy way to get over that. You put in some verbiage, uh, make somebody sign something and, and, you know, you assume no liability or responsibility for, for the correctness of this model. And then away you go. But at least, most of the models intact. But the other part, the major part that I see is that they fudge so many things, the dimensions, everything right. has been, you know, um, really it boils down to people not 
being as efficient in Revit as as they as we would like them to be, right? Right. Is that what you're kind of seeing too, or is there, you think there's something else to it? Well, there's there is a wide variety of it. Um, I had an interesting one recently. There was the the firm I'd actually taken through and was actually is actually pretty sophisticated in Revit, probably the best in Rochester, and you know, we ended up getting a project that we bid that was their design project. We won the job. We were ready to work on it. And then like, oh, great. This is my old design firm. I'll get a design model from them. It's, you know, it'll save us some time. You know, call them up and say, sorry, you're not getting a design model. It was all just about a new project manager. They weren't used to the system. They weren't confident that the team provided what they needed. And they saw their self, themselves kind of open up to risk. Um, so they said, no. We're not going to do it. It doesn't require us. It's going to take us out of our comfort zone. So we're not going to sign off on that. So, you know, we see some hesitation because of lack of confidence in their team that, you know, what they're providing is is good background. And, that, and that's not necessarily good. You know, it's not a good sign that they're not confident with the 3D models that they're creating, but are confident in their documents. But, it's, you know, it kind of gets, gets at the you know, into my bones when I see, you know, like my old firm backing off and I, I told them, hey, what's happening? You guys are regressing. You know, this this isn't good. We need to correct this and correct it fast. And, you know, you know, some more management assured me that they were going to move forward and be a little smarter about it, but they still weren't going to hand over the model. <laughs> well, this definitely ties into the next topic that you mentioned was the sharing of BIM models from design teams. Um, you know, you had mentioned that you're seeing a resurgence of the design firms refusing to share design models or attempting to, yeah, I'm reading verbatim here, uh, charge extraordinary amounts of money to share. Um, you know, why is there another backlash? How do we solve it? And why do we keep offering 2D exports? Uh, honestly, I think that's just, it's, you know, because we can, right? It's what people, you know, hey, look, I'm going to provide the 2D because that's what I'm comfortable providing at this time. And I think it's what ridiculous. You said. <laughs> I just I don't know, dude. I th I think with all the technology that we have today um, to share and coordinate data, I think that you know we need to adopt that. And and I mean I understand everybody needs to to make money. Everybody needs to make money. I, I fully support that. But we gotta I don't know. We gotta come together as an industry and figure out. Uh, you know, Joey and I we talked about this earlier. Um, better timelines for handover. You know, actually handing over a model. You know that is, I guess, to the level of detail that's expected, or at least contracted, right? And 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 when we can kind of, or how we can adjust this process um, to when people do receive that data. But also, again, I, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't think that they, I, well, I don't think people should be charging like that to get these design this, models. This is, I, this is something that we're going to talk to talk about a lot more on several episodes. We're going to talk about this. Because this all comes back to contractual obligations. Uh, oh, we're not contracted to do this. If you want this data, you're going to have to pay us for it. Um, I worked, you know, so I spent uh, time on the, the survey side getting construction layout that got me into BIM. And damn near every one of those disciplines, it's always been about the, oh, we'll, you know, we'll provide 2D data and we'll send it to you. Even the civil side will provide 2D data. We'll, we'll, we'll create this 3D model in, in uh, civil 3D. We'll create all this this rich information and then explode the hell out of it and then that's our deliverable yeah Here, here's something that really gets to the heart of it for all of these topics that i learned kind of in the design industry so as i started to learn some more is it does all come down to the client where's that money coming from the client 
in most respects for the vast majority of jobs is an unsophisticated client. So if you're talking about, you know, the next nursing home or school building, et cetera, these are people that are sitting on boards uh, that are running these businesses that, you know, their profession is not building buildings. They don't know how to do this. They, they go out and they trust an architect, you know, they hire an architect or a design team to provide those services, but they don't know what they're getting. They don't know what to ask for. And they don't have that level of sophistication to say, you know what, I really need them. I really need these extra deliverables to serve as risk management so that I'm not paying huge change orders when I hire my contractor. You know, and you know, when you look at that level of sophistication, it's it's bound and determined to work its way down the line. So if it's not specified, it's not going to be provided, and you're going to get lower, lower levels of service. And then you guys know how it works with a change order system. These guys will bid low, they'll win the job, which is the first important part, and they'll come back and they will make more money on change orders because they know there are so many errors in those drawings. Yeah, so it's my, my favorite graphic is my favorite graphic is the two boats next to each other. It's a contracted, you know, amount and then change order, and the change orders is you know contracted amounts is like little tiny skipper of a boat. And then uh, contracted or uh, change orders is this giant freaking yacht. Um, yeah, just uh, really telling for for uh, for those of you guys that don't know, um, you make your money on on the change orders. Right. And so you're we're undermining that system. If we have a really good set of coordination and BIM documents, et cetera, that change order system goes away. And so bids are truly more competitive and more in line with where they should be. And unfortunately, I think, you know, being exposed to that, I don't know that it will change because the vast majority of clients will remain unsophisticated clients. It's their first time building a building and it's going to be their last time building a building. So, you know, the only ones where that that is, I believe, is really going to happen are things like universities and hospitals where they have a team of facilities professionals that say, you know what, we screwed this up last time. The next one we're going to do, we're changing this. You know, we're going to specify these high level requirements so we don't get hit with those change orders. Yeah, yeah, and I actually have uh, a, a similar story. We've, uh, so we've, you know, we have, we know this government agency that um, they required BIM on a project and specify new, 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 uh, new in the BIM world, like, hey, give us some BIM, whatever, we'll pay X amount for it. Um, they got raked over the coals, uh, their facility flooded, their O&M manuals were in that facility. <laughs> Yeah. Um, they were like, oh, it's okay. We'll go back to the, the BIM model and it'll give us the information we needed. The BIM model actually had no data in it. They hired a third-party consultant team to go through it. There was like nothing in it. There was no warranty information. There was there, there was nothing. So uh, a few years later, they're kicking themselves. They're just there. You know, it's probably you know five good five years, and they're just like down in the dumps about it. And it was got a new project coming up, and they go over the top. They have educated themselves. They've hired they some millions hiring consultants to make sure that this never happens to them again. So they are no longer uh, a dumb, um, I would say dumb, in, uneducated um, uh, owner, right? They've, be, you know, they've progressed. But again, government agencies, uh, healthcare's, you know, data companies, um, pharmaceutical companies, uh, universities, these are the ones that have the educated owners in my, in my mind, or at least the ability to recover from a loss of an uneducated project. 
Yeah. So I, I personally think that's kind of where it lies. And I don't know that it's going to change because how do you change the industry where it's the first time buyer every time? Yep. Yeah. I, I think then it probably falls on to other, I mean, it, it's all, again, this falls back to the contract types and, you know, who's the owner's rep, who's, you know, who. Well, I think it, the, I think it goes to communication. It's a, it's a big key. Well, so the subcontractor is right? not communicating to the owner what they need on a project. That just doesn't happen, I mean, you know, especially on a smaller project, right? So maybe the GC might have a contact, but typically the architectural firm has a contact. Uh, maybe they have a CM, a uh, contract manager they've hired, or maybe the, the architect is the owner's rep and you have to, you know, the architect's your only point of contact. So then like, are you trusting the architect to give your information? So it really does become about communication. How does this conversation become full circle where you can educate the owner? We know a lot of GCs that just have a, a phenomenal relationship with um, with specific, you know, smaller builders, right? So the first one just went really well. The GC treated them right, and therefore they've got the business for life. So maybe that's what it takes. Maybe it takes somebody stepping outside and saying, hey, look, this isn't right. We'll go ahead and go the extra mile on this project in order to, you know, hopefully form a relationship with them to win the next one and then the next one. And maybe they're not discouraged and thrown out of the market. Maybe they're not going to lose their butt, right? And um, they'll be an owner of several buildings. I don't know, man. I'm just, uh, I'm not going to be able to solve all the world's problems. I'm just here to rant and <laughs> guys. That's it. Well, I think it's that and just, you know, just, well, communication, not just within you know, GC subcontractors, but owners themselves reaching out to other other people who own businesses in the area, you know, or just communication in, in that sense in general. If we can start sharing instead of siloing a lot of this information, hey, my project was very successful. This is what we did. You know, okay, uh, my project is a little bit different, but how can we adapt this to that, right? And and also, I think that's another kind of key piece to where owners need to look for these BIM consultants. If you don't have, you know, a knowledge base in this, don't just go well, through it blind and expect to figure your way out. You know, people will give you some brilliant renderings, well, but I think it, that's, there needs that, you know, that has smart data in it. I think that's what it's going to take to get out of this whole COVID mess, right? So. Again, chatted with this gentleman who uh, we're hoping to get on on a future episode here in November, um, who works in the work workspace environment, right? He sells workplaces as an architect. He thinks strategy with these these owners about where they should set up their offices and what they should think about. COVID's definitely put a hamper on that, right? Uh, before COVID, I think they've said something like, at most, the average was like 60%. You were in your desk 60% of the time. The other 40% of the time, somebody was you know off, you know, the water cooler talk. Uh, in meetings, grabbing lunch, whatever of their business day, right? Or they're, you know, traveling to Harrisburg to do uh, scans or whatever, wherever you're at, man, I have no clue. Um, but, but uh, right, they're doing all this stuff and um, they're not at their desk. And so the whole future of the workplace environment is is not that, um, it's totally just going to change. So his whole thought was, well, you know, if, we, if we're never going to get back to normal, if we're always going to, you know, maybe we're going to settle in at 30, 35 percent for the next five years, if that's what it looks like. Um, how do we recover as an industry, as the AEC as a whole? How do we, you know, get owners engaged? How do we get building? How do we do all this stuff? So really, I think what's going to happen is real estate might come down a bit. Um, but you know, I'm just speculating here. But there might be more smaller first time buyers to come out and pardon me, take on these projects. 
And yeah. if that happens, you know, how how do you, I guess, kind of go out of your way to make sure that you have more projects with them in the future and that scorned on that first one? Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's hard to anticipate, really hard to anticipate. If you do, let me know. <laughs> Man, if I can predict the future, I'm buying a lottery ticket tomorrow. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm investing in a lot of stock. <laughs> yeah. eh. Oh man, made that mistake several times. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, all right. So uh, next topic, man. Uh, this is one that I could talk about, so I'm blue in the face because it's a big pet peeve of mine. It kind of ties into number two, where people aren't sharing BIM models. But even if they are sharing BIM models, how is your deliverable PDF documents and 2D CAD as built? How is that a sufficient? I know the reason why people accept it. Um, but how, like, how are we still as an industry providing that when really we should almost in my mind, like, look, we put all this time and effort into creating a 3d model. Um, what, you know, why are people still just requesting the 2d and the, in the PDF? Yeah. I'm going to take it on a little tangent of something that came up this week. Um, I love it. Go ahead. So, you know, very, very similar workflow, but you know, we, we do a lot of work, uh, you know, let's say in Revit and especially in the MEP design and we get all fancy with colors and say, you know what, this system, this supply air is blue and this return air is green. Yeah, and your color scheme all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we, we dumb that down on a 2D piece of paper and we make it all black and white. And the reason is because somebody wants to print it. And when we look at, you know, the, the consumption of these prints these days, like how many times are people actually printing this document? You know, let's say out of 10 times, someone looks at this, how many times do they print it? Maybe one out of 10? Uh, you know, I have a, a customer, you know, looking at some of this stuff and they were very hesitant. I'm like, hey, why are you taking this, this Revit model and dumbing this down into your as-built and saying, make everything black and white? Because that's what we've always done and someone's probably gonna print this out sometime. Yeah, but you can print it out so, in black and white, even if it's color. Yeah. So a, a lot of times, though, so on the uh, subcontractor side, we would color code systems, not so much for the model, like, you know, to make a pretty model, right? It was more about um, informing the field about what each system was without them having to, to go back and look at documentation. So, um, I, you know, I came from the construction layout world. So uh, I'll just put it in these terms, right? So I wanted to give my guys that were laying out, um, you know, whatever system, you name it, they had to lay out something and they needed to know essentially what kind of hangers went in there, what system this was for, all that sort of stuff. The easiest way to give them that information was to provide them with one, the location points, obviously, uh, of, of the hanger, of said hanger, um, but also to color code everything so they could see it out in the field without literally having to go through I don't know if you guys have used um, uh, data collectors or have you been through 60 layout. You've got to pour through a bunch of um, clicks to get through all the properties. And if I have to do that for every single item, it's a pain in the butt. So we color code this stuff. Yeah. Just makes life a lot easier, especially during coordination, too. I know that, hey, look, this is a cold water line and sitting that that, uh, you know, steel girder, something needs to change here. And it's definitely not going to be steel girder. Yeah. But going back to the point, like, I mean, like with having a printed sheet 
I, I think that in itself is crazy because um, I mean we all know those people who have to have like they like the <laughs> feeling of paper. PDF. Blue beam tangent here. Well, somewhat, I guess. You know what? Actually, it's it's going to be somewhat of a of a blue beam PDF, but also BIM 360. Like, my sure. thought process is when when you have people with handsets of drawings, you don't know how often that person comes in and prints off a new, like double checks that drawing and prints off a new set. So people out in the field are talking to this person, they're talking to that person, and it's funny because I was just talking to someone about this the other day. The data that you get could vary by the person that you see on the job site. And and that in itself is is inexplainable, right? That's that's I don't understand that. When you have this data available, everybody should have the capability to get to it when they need it, right? And then secondly, as things change, as things adjust, we need to see that versioning and when you're looking at a, a 2D PDF, even in Bluebeam, like the compare and overlay strong features that really tell us, you know, kind of show us what, what has changed. But even then, it's a disconnected PDF. I still love Bluebeam. I still think that, you know, it's a huge part of our industry because, you know, PDFs are. But in, in the all reality of things, I'm looking at BIM 360 and seeing that when I print my sheet from Revit, I can literally click on elements within this, you know, a quotation mark 2D view right and and even in Revit itself as I'm maneuvering around when I'm looking at a floor plan it's really just a cut of that full 3D model and if we can take that and transition that data like just make that almost like an industry standard where we're you know we're cutting the model we're placing the sheets and it's in an interactive environment like it is in BIM 360 it makes sense not only you know being able to connect them with if you need somebody that's going to do design review and they only want to see the sheets, great. But if you have somebody that's you know even more intertwined with the design itself, actually getting into that 3D viewer, you know, spinning around, sectioning through that model, cutting it as you need to, placing markups on an actual 3D model and sharing that information, right? I think that is huge for our industry. Like just being able to connect it as the model changes, as it grows, you know, it it, it keeps everybody coordinated on the same page and it allows us to to move forward at that same pace i think in a perfect world you and i would require hey you have to use vim 360 you have to use revit you have to have a scanner well you know or, i'm or just scan saying, data on nearly yeah, every project yeah. well I'm, I'm using that as an example right i just think that uh because it's what i know but at the same time like it's a good example in the sense that when i look at a sheet in bim 360 and i click on let's say a wall I pull all of the metadata for that wall, all of the properties. I don't need to use a paint bucket to dump, you know, paint on it. I don't need to draw a line down it and say the depth is eight feet. This wall knows it's a wall. It knows how tall it is. It knows the materials that it has. Why can't we optimize the use of that data? Why am I remaking this stuff after this is printed? Like I shouldn't, the work that's already put into that model should be taken out, right? If we have good data in, you get good data out. If we can yeah. optimize that information, everybody is better. The disconnect has historically been that um, they would need to, the the end user who wants that data would have to know Revit to get that information. Negative. Um, no, historically. Historically, okay. in order for me to get that data, I would have to use Revit to get that information. Okay, yep, you're right. Otherwise, yep. I would have to use a third-party tool and kind of reverse engineer, use all these fancy tools to get that data. And there is a place and time for all this stuff, right? Um, but 
on the Big well, 3C side, I'm with you, man. I, I, so, wait, time I've out, though. Time out. In that for case, seven people, years. I can also print my schedules into an Excel spreadsheet, and almost everybody uses Excel. You know what I mean? So we can still keep everybody integrated well, with that design process and communication. I don't know, man. The uh, construction door guys that seem to think that Power BI is going to uh, <laughs> It runs <laughs> off Excel, though. Come on. Like, it Just takes kidding. an Excel data right now. Greg, Greg, what do you guys use? Are you guys getting into any of the fancy uh, new you know, technology out there? I say fancy. It's just Power BI. Are you guys doing anything with analytics and dashboards and any of that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, I've got a, a nice experience with the, uh, you know, that retail customer I mentioned. Uh, it's, it's a really fantastic experience to have. I certainly know that I don't know it all, but you know, from soup to nuts, from early conceptual design all the way through field management and operations, you know, it's basically all in Autodesk right now. And so I get to see and help, you know, facilitate that workload through barcoding all the equipment and everything. Um, and it, it, it's really you know, fantastic. Um, Was this a BIM 360 field with the barcoding? I'm just curious. It is transitioning from the, you know, the old, uh, what do they call that? Um, classic. Yeah, BIM field is the classic to the new one, which includes yeah. the, you have the assets module. I'm, I'm, I've been on BIM 360 for about seven years since like the, you know, um, I, that was my, that was my task was BIM 360. And uh, yeah. I, I, I've seen it, transform do this complete 180 but the asset tracking has always been the equipment tracking has always been my favorite component of bim 360 and now that we have that available in the new version i haven't gotten a chance to play with it but that what you're talking about right now that is the best workflow right so it's really i think at the turning point right now i i won't say it's fully mature by any means but i think we're at right at that turning point where it's a good time to adopt um because the you know it's it's all downhill from here um i think that that corner is turned and um i think it's a good time to adopt those things and again like soup to nuts when you have the the end in mind that you're going to manage a facility and you start building in specs and you start building in coordination you know with with a risk management in mind you know all of that plays to you know really just benefit that owner and when they're smart you know there's no stopping it no, I, I agree. I agree. It's it's how can they consume that data? How can they use it? Um, it's it's I don't know. It's a good thing to see, you know. And I, I think I think we are, like you said, heading that way. And and it, seeing that it's on the downhill slope, I, I think that's amazing because the more that we can, um, I think broaden that usage and show that usage case, the better, right? We're going to see more adoption because of it. Um, and I think that was a huge feature and. Honestly, when we can start connecting reality, right, that that actual real item with the digital environment, I think it, it, it's it's going to help everybody with almost one of the biggest parts of BIM, right, visualization yeah. and visualizing and seeing that data like, OK, this is real life and I, I can barcode this. I can see exactly where I am in this model and I can take this information. And, you know, Joey knows I've got this huge just I, I don't know I, I it's not a dream anymore obviously people are doing it but I, I've got this kind of passion the side passion for like manufacturing and and some of these plants and and connecting the maintenance with you know virtual or, or mixed reality right actually yeah. doing training with mixed reality and augmented reality and and, and 
I think this all kind of goes to push towards that, right? That that kind of intertwining. We want to say it's a digital twin. You know, most people are talking about scans most of the time. I don't care. Like, okay, cool, but let's make a digital twin of this, like this building, and let's actually connect well, it, right? Well, a, a scan will get you. Like, so if we're talking digital twin, we can take a scan of it. And, and yeah, you know, somebody's going to call nah, it a digital nah. twin, but, but you can turn that into an as-built model and actually use that as-built model. Well, that's what I'm saying. With, and then take the equipment, barcode it, everything. Barcode some of those pipes, barcode the equipment, connect everything in itself to that digital world. And, and, and when these facilities maintenance, the management, you know, what have you, these teams are taking care of this, this facility itself, this building and everything inside of it. Um, that data cool. is intertwined. It's easy to get to. Cause I mean, honestly, cool. dude, when you jump into Revit right now, if you're a new user, you jump into Revit. Do you know what you're going to do? Do you know how to navigate that project? Yes. No, I don't. Well, no, no, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, you get into these big projects and they're very complex. That project browser can get overwhelming and people don't know how to navigate through that. Right. You got to simplify this data well, again. Well, that's and, why and you just start deleting all the views that you don't think are relevant to you and then sync. Right. Is that, no, I'm just kidding. Guys, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> somebody's going to listen. Oh yeah, yeah. I just did it. No, I'm just, just don't do that guys. Just kidding. Uh, so, I mean, this kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier. So you're talking about this, having this as-built model and um, populating all this information. Um, you know, if, if, if you can have all of that data as part of your, so it's, you have, to, one, you have to have a smart owner. The owner has to know what to require. Um, and, and then the team just has to come together and deliver it, right? Yes. The issue that, that we fall into is that the system that the owner has, and this kind of plays back into why or 2D and PDF uh, as well as the requirement. Honestly, it's because most FM systems only take CAD. Um, there's been a few that have customized that allow us to take Revit models, and you know that's that's progressing. It's starting to happen. You know, probably about two years uh, in the tooth where this has actually been a thing. Um, but uh, it's not like a direct like one-to-one where I just take this and automatically maps to my FM system. No, we've got to do a whole bunch of setup. We've got to, you know, this has to be exporting a Kobe format and this has to map up with this. And, you know, it's just, it, it's kind of a pain in the butt. It's, it's a whole segment of BIM in itself to make that transition. So it really takes a, a, an educated owner on the front side to request things in a certain format so that at the end of this, you know, if we're using, say, BIM 360, they're giving us all this, you know, uh, properties uh, so that we're, you know, pushing from uh, field to glue and back to our BIM model. And then from there, we'll do this one push click to BIM 360 ops so they can use that as their maintenance taking system. Yeah. yeah. Whatever that that looks like or if maybe they're they're requiring stuff in a certain format. They're using, hey, you got to use DB Link and you got to populate all this data, whatever it is, um, with this 3D model so that we can plug it into our FM system. There has to be an education between the FM team and the, the field team. And we're talking, you're talking about this, this like, you know, the grandiose BIM, right? Where they're out on the, 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 the actual inside of the, the facility. They got the, the goggles on and they're walking around and heads up display pops up and is like, hey, you know, this is a valve. Turn three quarters to the right. And, and it's got a training dialogue built in. It's got all this stuff and it's really smart and intuitive. Um, and that's 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 an amazing thing that that one day hopefully becomes the norm in these complex 
facilities. But, um, you know, that owner has to know what that that headset is going to need in the future or what like there has to be a whole thought process, a whole architect architecture that goes into defining these this kind of scope. It, I don't man, it's crazy. I You know, we work with a lot of, you know. I won't say any names. We work with a lot of uh, big tech companies, clients that work with a lot of big tech companies that have ridiculous specifications, and uh, we get to like kind of fine tune stuff through that. And it it's amazing to 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 be part of those scopes. But at the end of the day, it's like, man, you you realize like, what are they really putting this through? Are they going to put it through some headset? Or are they going to do all this stuff? You know, there's there's so much to think about. Well, another another key thing to think about here too is, you know, we're talking about the handoff, right? And and over to the facilities management team. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of the um, design models go to die, right? At that point, the design model stops being updated. The the construction model, what, what have you? Yeah, that's something else. Well, as you start pushing through that, you know, the facility, uh, people update the building. That design, even the BIM data, does not get updated, right? Yeah, that's like, something else for you with a different approach. Mm-hmm. So this is is not necessarily um, conventional, but the approach that we're taking is you're very familiar with BIM 360 documentation. Instead of treating that as a project site, treat it as a, as a facility site. So as you're doing a project, you're really setting it up to say, you know what, this isn't going to be a project and it's going to die here. This is going to live here, and when we do our next project, it's just going to continue on. It's not necessarily what it's meant for right now, but we are making it work, and it's working out really well. Um, Are are you providing the license in that case, or is the owner hosting the site? The owner is hosting the site, but requiring anybody participating, they're going to buy licenses. So so that, that is the norm with a few customers that we have. Um, there's maybe a conversation offline, but, but there's, there's a, this, this is a trend that we, we're starting to see. And I quickly see, like, I'm hoping at some point Autodesk comes up with this bring your own license model. Uh, cause that, that to me makes the most sense, uh, with all this, if we can have an owner host the, host the site and everybody just brings their licenses to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually what we're doing. Um, you know, the owner hosts that they own it. You know, oh, they, the design they side, gotcha. Whenever they want to and just invite whoever they want to work on it, but they're going to buy some licensing to, to you know, have access to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that. If we could connect that, I think, with that, you know, well, long-term, right, and, and BIM 360 Ops, connecting the actual design or that construction mm-hmm. model, that existing as-built model to a facilities management, so that way when they update a pump, you know, where they update yep. these valves or anything like that. They take the barcode, they scan that new element in, and guess what? That's reflected Ooh. back into the original model. And that's probably one of the bigger issues. Like, we talk about this, you know, we've we've got this pie-in-the-sky idea of what BIM should be. And it's all-encompassing, not just the construction life cycle, but the whole building life cycle. Um, really, uh, the space planning side and the updating and all that stuff, you know, it, it's kind of few and far between of making itself even back into the 2D documentation rather than the the, the 3D. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really about like trying to put forth this this industry standard of BIM, but not just BIM for construction, but BIM for like everything, right? We've everything. got to, we've got we've we really got to do a better job at at educating more people about about BIM. And it sucks because you know if you're anything like me, you're probably sick of hearing the term BIM. And digital twins, you know, sh- quickly becoming there too, right? It's Buzzword. like 
Ah, oh, buzzword. Yeah, sim, bim, digital twin, you name it, man. Coordination. <laughs> it's like, all right, what do you really mean when you say this? Uh, because it has a thousand different meetings and, and different levels of specification. Yeah, I just, I love the idea of just making it live on. Treat it as if it's not going to die. That you're ready for that next project whenever it may start. That's and so it, man. You just keep going. That's it. And, and I mean, honestly, if, if, we, if we can keep that as if we could start like that, if that's a trend, I would fully support that trend because every owner in, in that sense would be able to they, they don't have to go back and hire somebody to go and, and document their as built and update this old model that they've got. You know, it, it's a living I don't want to say a living document, but a living thing. Right. This this information that because BIM is not just building information modeling. Right. It's building information management for the building itself. It's you need to keep this information and and, and we, if we can't update the model, great, you know. Yeah. Uh, just that you sound like Johan Tuckler. BIM is more than I models. <laughs> BIM is more, dude. That's exactly what was popping up in my head. Oh, I was like, man. hashtag BIM is more than models. As you guys are talking, it's funny, but it really is. You know, it, we need to transition this, and it's a different kind of thought process at that point. That it's not just you know this model. It is everything about this building. This building itself needs to – we need to have all of this information in this model or just included around where it's accessible, right? Because, I mean, yeah, if we could keep all of the data for every single thing in that model, that would be great. But it's going to be huge. It's going to be bloated, right? And and, and it's going to be maybe hard to navigate. Um, but if we can kind of put that into something that people understand, you chunk it out, right, and, and give it in a way that they understand it, I think that's just beneficial for everyone involved. I agree. And and I feel like we're I don't want to end this on a sour note. So I kind of want to transition right now because I feel like we've been a little sour on the industry. Uh, like <laughs> get up to our standards, damn it. No. Uh, but but that said, like I, I really want to talk about some positive things that you're doing, Greg. Like one, not only are you pushing BIM forward, you're 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 an advocate for uh, you know, clear edge and just you know point clouds and scan data and all this stuff that that we hold near and dear to our hearts. But, uh, you know, I was reading in your bio that, uh, you know, you go to Haiti, you provide engineering consultation, design services, Haiti Providence University. I, I just want to chat more about that, man. Yeah, sure. Um, so everybody knows the 2010 earthquake, um, you know, it hit big and I think it's probably the biggest natural disaster ever to hit, you know, other than wiping out the dinosaurs. It was pretty big as far as human life goes. Um, and. I just happened to be in a position uh, working as a, a structural engineer at the time and, you know, sitting there is like everybody else working your day away and had a buddy of mine come up to the, the desk and say, hey, you feel like going to Haiti next week? I was like, what? What are you talking about? It's like, yeah, someone asked me to go. They've got a, you know, a mission trip to go down there and help out, see what, uh, what we can do for some damage assessment and help them get back on their feet. Like, yeah, I don't have anything going. Let's go. Um, you know, so got over the, the fear of going to a third world country and uh, headed down to Haiti. Um, I can remember getting off the plane at the uh, Port-au-Prince airport and the stewardess looks at me and she says, don't worry, it's going to be OK. I'm like, oh, you, you can tell, huh? So you know, <laughs> she can see the, the look on my face as I'm trying to get off the plane, uh, you know, that there's a, a little bit of fear in my eyes, but, you know, certainly got over that relatively quick, you know, worked with a, a church organization and, um, you know, they got us introduced to a lot of people and just the, the amount of damage was just phenomenal. 
Um, you know, so use my structural engineering background to, you know, to assess some projects. Um, so, you know, some buildings that were partially collapsed and, you know, kind of what can they do? And, you know, you start to see the bigger picture of, you know, the standards of living and, and things like that and their construction practices. And like, oh, my goodness, how do they get away with building things like this? It's just extraordinary. So there was a, a lot of education on my part. So I probably spent, I don't know, two, three nights two of those two or three of those first nights just studying and studying and studying about building um you know and what it took and you know luckily had a, a place to stay that could get an internet connection and just basically just downloaded everything i could see and just read like crazy and we ended up going out and um training their architects and engineers like how to build better you know and that was you know by the seat of my pants just learning everything about how they were doing things and observing these structures and what was going on and more so than like giving an actual assessment and telling them what to fix was more along the lines of, you know, teaching people how to fish, tell them how to, you know, do these things better, do it for themselves and not just tell them what to do or do it for them. Um, so started to, you know, work with them to, to teach them how to build better and then also how to teach others how to build better. Uh, so gave them a lot of resources, um, ended up making three separate trips um, and basically through that same church organization, they had started a new uh, university and that that university is, is faith based. And they you know, took a, a different stance to try to educate people. And I, and I really, really believe in this to, you know, the, the way out of the poverty and everything else is through education. That's the, the absolute best thing you do instead of just giving something to somebody or building it for them or, you know, whatever it is, you teach a man to fish and they can fish for life. So, you know, we really focused on that and that's what they do at that university. So I've been kind of a help and a part of that, helping them, you know, kind of uh, review their buildings, review their site plans, review some other stuff, um, have done some scanning down there, have flown drones over their sites to give them better senses of things, have taught people how to fly drones, um, you know, given them more tools in their tool bag that they weren't aware of. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. It's a great thing to be part of. That is awesome, man. That is awesome. We um, we actually have a coworker, a friend of ours, who you know went to Haiti and helped rebuild all this sort of stuff. Not to the level you did. It sounds like you were the whole teaching man to fish is a great mantra for us to live by. Um, I you know I'm I'm blown away. I wasn't expecting you know this much great content in one one podcast. So I just want to say thank you for your time, and I, I really think that we should we should do this again. Yeah. I, I, I think so as well. Thank you again, Greg, for coming on, really. Yeah, thank you, guys. Pleasure being on and shooting the breeze. And uh, we're all passionate about this stuff. And, uh, you know, we just love doing it. Love it. That's a great, great note to end on. We love doing it, guys. Cheers.